our time last week finishing up the seven trumpet judgments. And in that section, we saw the startling picture of persecution against God's people, yet also God's eternal protection over those people. So I just want to ask you guys as we start out, how did you guys do this week? How did you do bearing witness about Jesus throughout the course of this week? Have you consumed, have you eaten the word of God these past couple weeks and then spoken it to those around you? I'm just going to testify that there was an opportunity that I could have done so and I failed. Um, So just to confess that before you guys. Um, But God is gracious, right? And that's the, the purpose of us gathering here today is that we might be encouraged and strengthened to go back out and to serve our Savior. And so those disciplines that we talked about, that, that consuming of God's word, letting it become us and transform us until it can't help but get out of us, those disciplines are going to be just as important in response to today's text, as we'll see. So we're in Revelation chapter 12. Go ahead and turn there, Revelation chapter 12. And just to give you a little bit of the, the overlay, the roadmap for the next couple weeks, Revelation chapter 12 introduces a new section of the book of Revelation. And this section is going to take us deeper behind the scenes to explain the suffering and the persecution and the deceptions that have already been mentioned up until this point. In fact, one scholar even writes that Revelation chapter 12 has always been, consciously or not, considered as the center and the key to the entire book. And so this interpretive center of the book of Revelation introduces one final interlude of visions before the seven bowl judgments and the end of time. And the storyline that unfolds from chapter 12 and the chapters following lines up with and interlocks with everything that we've touched on in the first 11 chapters. And it gives us greater detail. It unveils for us the fact that tribulation, temptation, accusation, deception, the trampling of that outer court, as we mentioned last week, all of those things described in the first 11 chapters are not just happenstance, but they're actually being used intentionally as weapons by four primary characters. And as these characters appear... The dragon first, as we'll see today, followed by his evil subordinates, the beast, the false prophet, and the evil woman, are going to be defeated in the reverse order. So as they arise, then they're defeated until the dragon himself is finally defeated. And so these visions unpack and explain the intense difficulty of this wilderness experience that we're in right now. It's the wilderness experience for Christian exiles living in the outer court. And so remember, these visions that that we're going to begin to go through are designed to stir us up to enduring hope and to holiness until we reach the land of rest that God has promised to us, until we reach that prophecy in Ezekiel 11 where we are with our God forever. So that's our roadmap for the next few weeks. But getting back to chapter 12. What we're going to see today in this turning point of the book is that the devil is furiously pursuing, persecuting, and waging war against God's people. And here's why. The physical death and resurrection of Jesus, followed by the ascension of his resurrected body, marked the cosmic and irreversible defeat of the illegitimate ruler who's manipulated his way into temporary control of the world. Because of that, he's furious. In other words, the devil's been dethroned and he's raging in revenge. So let's go ahead and read through Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. 
she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads, heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The scene begins in verse 1 with the introduction of the first character, a woman. Somebody tell me, just look at the text and shout out, how is this woman described? What does she look like? Clothed with the sun. What else? Pregnant, yes. What else? She's got a crown of 12 stars. Yes. The woman is beautiful and majestic. And she is positioned to rule. She's got a crown on, and she is standing on the moon. Remember, the sun and the moon were made to rule the day and the night. And here, this woman is crowned, standing in the heavenlies, ruling. But as verse 2 continues, as you said, the woman's majestic beauty is accompanied by the agony of childbirth. And she's pregnant. She's crying out in pain. And as she begins the delivery of her child, she goes into labor. The second character appears in verse 3, the dragon. What does the dragon look like? Somebody shout it out. A red dragon with horns. Sounds familiar. This great dragon, and the word great in the Bible is an emphatic word. I think I've said this before. In English, great doesn't really mean a whole lot, but in the, in the text of the Bible, great means great. The dragon is great, and he's red in appearance, and he is also crowned. And this red dragon is a well-known ancient symbol of evil bloodshed, and death. This is not the Halloween figure that we see in stores. This is an ancient symbol of death and destruction. And so right away in verse 4, we see him fulfilling that symbolism as he is already destroying and seeking to devour. He sweeps down a third of the stars with his tail, and he stands before the woman in hopes of devouring the child. 
And so this dragon is described as having seven heads with ten horns, which reveals that this is not a new character in the storyline of the Bible. This beast has already appeared in the prophetic visions of Daniel chapter 7. And in that text, we have some additional character development of this dragon. The dragon in Daniel chapter 7 is unlike any other beast, and he's exceedingly strong and terrifying. And the, the beast in Daniel chapter 7 actually devours the whole world and tramples it down. Does that sound like last week, the trampling that we talked about? And so in Daniel 7, an angel explains to Daniel that this dragon beast is actually ruling the world by influencing human kings and kingdoms to make war on God's people. And so this biblical context clues us in that this initial opening scene with the dragon is happening in the earthly domain. The beast rules through human rulers. Okay, so this is happening in the earth. The, the beginning scene portrays the dragon's earthly assault. And the dragon stands on the earth, flexing his authority through humans to devour that child. So what is the significance of this child that this super powerful villain would seek to devour him? I think you guys know the answer, but let me just get there. The woman is described also in a way that shows us this woman is not a new character in the Bible either. The most obvious parallel to her description in verse 1 can actually be found all the way back in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, where Joseph has a dream. And what does he dream? He sees the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to himself, who was the 12th star. And that star imagery is repeated throughout the Bible in many different prophecies, but specifically in the book of Genesis, it refers to the 12 sons of Israel or the 12 tribes of God's people. But furthermore, throughout the Old Testament, that star imagery becomes the imagery of a woman. Think about all the different verses that refer to God's people as his bride. So throughout, throughout the OT, the faithful remnant of those 12 tribes of Israel are repeatedly described as the woman and the bride of the Lord. Song of Solomon 6.10 describes that bride of the Lord this way. He writes, She is one who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon and bright as the sun. And Isaiah writes that God's faithful people, his bride, shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of their God, like a bride adorned with jewels. These descriptions also match the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. So there's this recurring theme throughout Scripture that these stars represent God's people, but those stars are also God's beautiful bride who will rule with him one day. But... Isaiah 26 takes that step, or takes that imagery of the bride one step further. Isaiah 26, verses 16 through 18, reveals that before the day when that bride is consummated with her groom, she will actually be like a pregnant woman in pain before that happens. He writes this, Isaiah 26, O Lord, in distress they sought you. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind and have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. The pregnant woman is the household of God's people who had been given a promise by God that an anointed servant would come to them, would be born among them, and bring salvation from all their enemies, from all the suffering and judgment and persecution and hardship that they had suffered. This anointed servant would step in and save them. But as Isaiah writes, 
they didn't see that deliverance yet. They were still waiting for the child to come. They were still oppressed, still persecuted, still crying out in agony for a savior. And if you think about the prophecies in the Old Testament, I know you guys know this, but that savior was promised to be a righteous ruler. And that ruler would rule the world, uh, Psalm chapter 2 says, with a rod of iron. And Daniel chapter 2 says that that ruler would break to pieces all the kingdoms of earth that oppose God's sovereign rule. And that righteous ruler would come as a male child born to a virgin woman in the city of Bethlehem. The dragon's earthly assault here in verse 4 is a direct attempt to destroy God's people by killing their Messiah. Think about as the New Testament begins, the narrative of Jesus' birth in the days before. Think about Matthew chapter 2 when King Herod finds out there's another ruler on the scene. What does he do? He commands his minions to destroy all the young Jewish boys. But then after Jesus survives that, we don't have time, but think about the imagery of the wilderness. Again, he's, he goes into Egypt in the wilderness where he's preserved from that destruction. Then in Matthew 4, as he begins his ministry, we see the devil himself coming before Jesus and tempting him, tempting him to worship the devil and tempting Jesus even to throw himself down off the temple to his destruction. Furthermore, throughout Jesus' ministry, after he successfully withstood the devil's attacks there, we have this recurring mention of the plot to kill Jesus by the chief priests and by the elders. They wanted to kill him. They even attempted to stone him. And there was that one moment where somehow the crowd stood still and Jesus passed through them and escaped and was preserved and went into the wilderness. These are all glimpses of the dragon's attempt on earth to devour that child, Jesus. And all of these attempts culminate in the passion narrative when Luke 22, 3 says, Satan entered Judas to finally destroy that anointed male child on a Roman cross. But does the dragon win the earthly assault? Yes or no? Come on, shout it out. He does not. No. Look at verse 5. The woman successfully gives birth to the child, and it skips right ahead to that child being caught up to God and his throne. The strongest weapon the dragon wields in his earthly assault is the threat of physical death. And he finally brings that child to the grave. But death couldn't hold him down. Amen? Death could not hold Jesus in the grave. And it's specifically the physical resurrection of his body from that grave and his ascension back to heaven that identifies this child, Jesus, as the righteous ruler who would rule with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 the prophecy that this text speaks of says this in verses 6 and following. The Lord declares, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You are my son, and today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Both at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration, there's an allusion to this prophecy where the, the Father's voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved Son. But then, in Acts 13, why don't you guys go ahead and turn to Acts 13, just so you can see this. Paul, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who is preaching the gospel, says this in Acts chapter 13, verse 23. He makes this connection between Jesus and the beloved son with the rod of iron in Acts 13, 23. He says, God has brought to Israel a savior, 
Jesus as he promised. Skip down to verse 28. Though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had followed him, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, he has fulfilled to us by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here's the point. The dragon's earthly attempt to destroy God's people by killing their Messiah was defeated and disarmed when Jesus rose from the grave. Amen? It was defeated and disarmed when Jesus rose. And the power of the enemy was actually revealed to be powerless. And his scariest weapon was rendered ineffective. And so here's the point for you from that section. Look at verse 6. Jesus is caught up to God. That child is caught up to the throne. And the woman the family of God's faithful followers, his bride, flees into the wilderness. Here again, we have this Exodus wilderness theme that we've mentioned before. The wilderness is a place of drought and danger, yet that is the place that God has prepared to nourish and protect his people. The point for you is that Jesus' defeat of the dragon's earthly assault means that you who trust in him will be protected, you will be nourished in this wilderness right here, right now, until he comes back. And as Zach mentioned earlier, physical death, physical pain, physical suffering are still a reality in this wilderness. Are they not? But that weapon of physical death has been defeated and your soul is eternally protected, and the resurrection of your body is guaranteed if your faith is in that anointed Messiah. It is not death to die because the dragon's earthly assault through death has been defeated. You guys, does that make sense? Everybody, we're on the same page? All right, so let's keep going into verse 7. Here we see in verse 7 that the dragon's influence extends beyond the natural physical world. And here we're given a glimpse into the spirit realm, which provides deeper, even deeper insight into the magnitude of Jesus' victory. And it reveals the specific identity of the dragon. Here we see a vision of the dragon's heavenly assault. Look at verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. Now this phrase, I don't know about you, but it stirs up so many questions in my mind. What in the world is happening in this war? What would that even look like? But unfortunately, the Bible doesn't describe it for us. It doesn't give us the nitty-gritty details other than the fact that there's a war between Michael and his angels, the dragon and his angels, and the dragon is defeated. Now, there's a couple different views, as with basically everything in Revelation, as to the timing of when this took place. Uh, but I would argue, and, and I feel strongly about this, that this section, this picture of this heavenly war, is actually des describing the heavenly perspective of the same assault that happened in the first six verses. Some would say this was the primordial rebellion of Satan, which it could be. Uh, but it seems to me that this war is happening simultaneously as that promised child is almost and then born. It seems like the angels are, I don't even know in what ways, intervening and battling each other to, to have this child. And so as the dragon and his angels fight back, verses 8 and 9 herald his demise. It says that he was defeated there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to earth. This is the first place in the Bible all the way since the beginning that the devil, Satan, and the dragon are explicitly identified as that serpent who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. But this also identifies Jesus as that promised seed. Remember Genesis 3.15? This text identifies Jesus, that male child, as the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And so just as his earthly assault was foiled, we also see here that his heavenly assault is foiled. One of the strongest reasons that I believe this is a heavenly perspective of the same event is found in verse 10, where John hears this loud voice crying out from heaven. And presumably this voice is the worshipers who are already gathered there. And the voice cries out when the dragon is cast out. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. The heavenly defeat of the dragon comes when the salvation and the power and the authority of God's Christ have come. That's kingdom inauguration language. That is the language of scripture that all points to the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Going back to Acts 13. This is language that refers to his death, resurrection, and ascension. But even in his public ministry before he was crucified, his ministry of power and authority to teach and to heal and to deliver, even that before he was crucified brought the kingdom of heaven crashing into earth. And so even with that crashing down collision of heaven and earth, Jesus could say to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The earthly and the heavenly defeat of this dragon are intertwined with the life and ministry followed by the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. You see that? It's comprehensive. Every aspect of this victory is bound up in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And this point is further emphasized in verse 11. When the voice from heaven declares that the dragon has been conquered, what does it say first? The dragon's been conquered by what? By the blood of the lamb. Yes. The heavenly defeat of the dragon, just like his earthly defeat, took place when Jesus died and rose again. So if Satan was officially cast down, at that point, when Jesus was exalted, what was he doing before that? What was his place that was taken away in the heavenly realm? And if his earthly weapon was death, what was he fighting with in heaven? Because you know, what, what could he do to the almighty glory presence of God? Look at the second half of verse 10. Here, the voice from heaven reveals that Satan's place prior to this was to bring accusation. It says, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan's war against God is carried out on God's people. Because what can Satan do to harm God? Anybody know? What can he do to harm God? Absolutely nothing. So what does he do but the next best thing? And he comes to those people that God created, that God loves, and tries to destroy them. His greatest physical weapon is to kill the physical body of God's earthly representatives. And his greatest spiritual weapon is to stand before the Lord and to accuse you of everything you've ever done wrong before the Lord. Think about that for a second. Knowing at the beginning of creation 
that disobeying God would result in spiritual separation and physical death, the deceiver of the world manipulated Adam and Eve into a covenant of rebellion with himself to their destruction. And there he gained the authority in his mind to defeat God. You guys remember Job chapter 1? I know Russ does because we've been talking about it recently. Do you remember what happens there? There we see an example of this accusatory dynamic playing out. And it seems like even after Satan's rebellion and the fall of man in the beginning of the Bible, in some way, shape, or form, he still has access to come before God's throne to bring a report from the earth and to make accusations. I don't know how, I don't know what that looks like, but the Bible shows us that it happened. And so in Job chapter 1, there we see Satan not only accusing Job, but actually even accusing God. He essentially says that God has bribed Job to like him. And so God says, go ahead, test the guy and see what happens. Satan's goal in the book of Job was to bring physical suffering, pain, death, tragedy upon Job in order to stir him up into spiritual rebellion against God. And at that point, once he could get Job to deny God and curse him, then he could stand before God and say, look, he hates you. Judge the guy. He's a sinner. He's rebellious. Destroy him. That was the goal of Satan in bringing that accusation. But this theme is also picked up, lo and behold, in the book of Zechariah again. I hope you guys love the book of Zechariah. We should do that as our next sermon series. But in Zechariah chapter 3, there he sees a vision of the high priest standing before the Lord and who is at his right hand but Satan accusing the brethren. And in that vision, as soon as Satan brings accusation, the Lord strongly rebukes him. And he says that I have chosen Jerusalem. And then what does he do? After he rebukes Satan, he removes the filthy garments of iniquity from the high priest, from the people at large, and he places royal, pure garments upon that person. And then he promises that he will send his branch to, to lift the iniquity of the land. But here again, we see Satan bringing accusation before the throne of God against God's people. And so what we have there is the accusations of Satan intended to stir up God's judgment upon the people for their sins. Think about that. He can kill our bodies, and if he can get us to rebel from God before we die, then we will die in our sin and we will be destroyed forever. And there you have the devil's plan unfolded. But just as his weapon of death was rendered useless through Christ's resurrection, his weapon of accusation was silenced by Christ's atoning sacrifice, and the place of the accuser was cast down, and the brothers rejoiced. The devil's accusations against us are not baseless because we're sinners. You guys agree with that? The devil knows what he's talking about when he brings those accusations. And if the Lord would count those accusations against us, who could stand? But let me just read. I have a little bit of a, um, a conglomeration of scripture verses that I strung together that speaks to this point. So I'm just going to read it. This is from a whole bunch of the New Testament. If, if, if the Lord would count everything against us, who could stand? Just hear these words of scripture. We have been justified through faith in Christ. And we've been raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and there is therefore now no condemnation for anyone in Christ. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? 
Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. It's not Satan standing at the right hand of God bringing accusation, but it's our Savior and our mediator, that great high priest, Jesus Christ, interceding on our behalf because of his death and resurrection. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. The dragon's earthly and heavenly attempts to destroy God's beloved people have both been put to shame in Christ. But that doesn't mean that he's hiding somewhere with his tail between his legs waiting to be punished. In fact, the exact opposite is true. And this is our final point. The dragon's response to this shameful defeat is furious pursuit of God's people. Let's keep reading from the end of verse 12. For all those who are protected in Christ, the brethren from heaven declare that they are, they are blessed. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because... He knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the child. All the persecution and suffering, the attacks against God's people that have been mentioned in Revelation thus far are the devil's raging attempt to destroy whatever he can before Jesus comes back because he knows his time is short. He's not ignorant of the fact that he will be punished. And in fact, it's actually the same shortness of time that gives us hope to endure that's giving him hope to destroy. This brief, temporary, 42-month wilderness period between Jesus' first and second coming has already been and will continue to be characterized by repeated attempts of the dethroned dragon to exterminate God's church and control the world. And he's going to utilize deception. He's going to utilize accusation. And he's going to utilize physical violence to bring mass destruction. He's no longer standing before God bringing those accusations, and so he comes to us and brings the accusations. He comes to us and brings the deceptions. And so what we see here again in verses 14 through 16 in this Exodus-like vision is again that God will protect his people. Even though the devil's raging, God will protect. Just like he protected Moses and those people, just like he protected Elijah, he will protect and he will provide supernaturally and he will give his bride, as the text says, wings like the eagle to flee from the serpent. This is a direct link back to Exodus. He will lift his people in protection. And the earth will swallow up the devil's attempts to destroy us. Even when physical persecution and death happen. That's the juxtaposition of revelation, is that even if we are killed for the sake of Christ, we are protected. We will be lifted up to his presence. And so it's the people of God who conquer the dragon, who is waging war against them through the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, because they gave their lives even unto death for the sake of Christ. It is not death to die for those who have been sealed and measured for protection by the Spirit of God. And so, in verse 17, the devil continues to rage even today. It says that he became furious with the woman, and he continues to make war on the rest of her offspring, which is those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That is us. And that is right now. Every attempt of the enemy to destroy God's people and derail God's plan has been defeated in Jesus. 
His earthly assault with death was defeated by Jesus becoming dead. And his heavenly assault with accusation was defeated by Jesus becoming accused. And the salvation and the power and the authority of the kingdom of God and his Christ have come, have been established as Jesus came out of the grave and was taken back to his throne. And the devil is after you. He's furious, he's ashamed, and he is raging. And this is where the rubber meets the road for us today. The devil has been dethroned and he's raging in revenge. And if you hold to the testimony of Jesus as his follower, you can expect that those attacks will come. He is spiteful, he's powerful, he's patrolling the earth like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. Because he knows that you are still susceptible to human weakness and sin, are we not? We are not perfect, we are not fully sanctified yet, and we are susceptible to his attacks. Even the people of God, especially the people of God. And so how do we stand? How can we ward off these attacks? Here's what he's going to do. He's going to attempt to deceive you so that you give in to temptation and disobey God. He will attempt to accuse you so that you feel condemnation and avoid God. And he will attempt to kill you so that your witness is silenced. That is his plan of attack. He will use every resource available in this world at his disposal in pursuit of your destruction. But the fact is that he can only work where he is given sway. He will use demonic spiritual forces to influence godless human puppets to spread his lies and temptations. But they are only effective when they're believed and obeyed. Do you see the emptiness of that plan? Yet, sadly, it is effective in some ways. He's going to distort any area of human achievement by hooking himself into human pride and exploiting that pride and that weakness to bring division and violence and disease and death and all the things that we see around us. He's going to use whatever human convention he can, whatever system he can, wherever he's given sway, politics, religion, education, media, entertainment, whatever it is, he's going to use it if he's given influence. And sadly, he has that influence. And all of this is done with the destruction of God's people as priority number one. That is the reality of calling yourself a Christian and declaring your allegiance to God's Christ. And remember, as we talked about last week, you're not called to bring down fire in judgment. You're called to be a witness. You're called to be his anointed witness to prophesy here in the outer court. The Lord is on his throne, and he is coming back. So how do we stand? I know Dave knows the answer because he gave me the coin with the answer on it. <laughs> the armor of the Lord. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, this is how you withstand the devil's attacks. They're going to come. This is how you stand. He writes, put on the whole armor of God. Go ahead and turn there. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 11. This is where the rubber meets the road for us because we are facing this war and we must stand. We must be effective witnesses. Paul writes, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth 
That's, that's weapon number one. How do we deal with the deceptions and the accusations of the enemy? We know God's truth. His weapons are only effective when they're believed. So we've got to know God's truth. Just like that old illustration of counterfeit money. The people who detect counterfeit money are trained by looking at the real thing. They know what the real thing is, and they can detect the counterfeit. Stand, therefore, with the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, above all, we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ already. Therefore, we must live holy lives. And when we are doing the right thing in obedience to our king, we won't be doing the wrong thing in obedience to our enemy the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That's a massive protection, extinguishing all the darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith. And take the helmet of salvation, our seat with Christ in heaven is what protects us, right? His spirit of God sealing us eternally is that helmet of salvation. We've got to be walking with the spirit, not grieving him, not disobeying him, but obeying him and walking with him. And then take up his sword, which is the word of God. We've got to know what he says in his word. We've got to consume it. We've got to let it shape us. We've got to become the people that God has died to make us into, but we don't do that in our own strength. We cannot just will our way into holiness, right? It's the spirit of God working through us, sanctifying us, cleansing us, restoring us, strengthening us, and all of those things happen when we are consuming God's word, when we're listening to him. And then he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. How many of us pray like the devil is coming after us? Let that encourage you this week to spend time with your Lord and God, praying as if you need his protection because you do praying at all times in the spirit and keeping alert. And I love that he finishes this by praying that words may be given to him in opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel because here's the whole message of revelation. We are here in the wilderness to bear witness about Jesus, right? And so as a child of God who's already been saved, who's already protected, your sin is not going to remove you from God's covenant people, but what your sin will do is it will make your witness ineffective. It will destroy your testimony before the world. And so here Paul closes this section by praying that he would not only be protected by this armor, but all for the sake of his witness about Jesus, that he might be able to boldly declare the gospel. The answer to the deceptions of the devil is truth, and the answer to his accusation is God's forgiveness in Christ. And all of his attempts to destroy us are defeated in Christ. Would you guys bow with me, and we're going to close in prayer, followed by our last song.
Lord, I just want to pray on behalf of your people in this church right now that um, this message of your victory over our mortal enemy is a victory that we must cling to every day. It's a victory that we must think about and ponder and be amazed by and bring praise to you because of every day. And so, Lord, I want to pray on behalf of your people here that that we would cling to that victory. And as we've said before, that we would take your words and consume them and eat them, breathe them in, and let them transform us, that we might bear witness about you boldly, that we might see others in this world, in our neighborhoods, in our families, those who have been knowingly or not in covenant with your enemy, that we might see them brought out of that kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light of your beloved son. Lord, we long to see those salvations and those redemptions taking place. We long to see real people gathered into this church because they have been saved by this glorious gospel. Lives transformed, families restored, sicknesses healed, miracles happening. Lord, all these things flow out of your victory on the cross and in the grave. And so, Lord, I pray for this church that we would bear witness, that we would that we would take up your whole armor to stand firm until that day when you return to vindicate us. Lord, we need your help. And Spirit of God, we need even, even help in praying. Just like the disciples in the garden, our spirit is willing. We would love to spend more time in prayer. I don't think there's a person in here that would say otherwise, but we are weak. Our flesh is weak. We get distracted. We fall asleep. We have everything else to do. And so, Lord, I want to pray. First of all, we confess that weakness before you. Don't we? We confess that to you, Lord, that we are weak. Our prayer lives, our devotional lives are not where they should be. We don't act like we're in a war. And, Lord, we need your forgiveness for that. We also need your help. So, Spirit of God, would you fill us with this eagerness and this joy to pursue you and to know you, to listen to you, to obey you, to spend time praying with our protector. So, Lord, we ask for your help. And I ask that you would take these words of Revelation 12 and keep them in our minds and in our hearts this week as we face the enemy, as we face temptation as we face accusation and condemnation, Lord, protect us and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.